Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. Watch and listen to Higher Learning where we dissect the biggest topics in black entertainment, politics, and sports. Twice a week, we react to the most important and timely conversations, often inviting guests to offer unique perspectives. Listen to Higher Learning free only on Spotify. All right, we're taping this Wednesday afternoon, Pacific time. I wish there were better circumstances to have the first podcast I've ever done with Eddie Vedder and Jeff Amet, but uh, we're going we're gonna to cruise through it anyway. They have a new album coming out on Friday, and you had a whole tour planned, and then everything changed. Eddie, what has the uh, last five weeks been like for you? Uh, well, five weeks. If you go back, it, it was all going pretty great. We were uh, practicing and... Uh, enjoying each other's company and able to have, you know, a fairly small gathering of us and the crew and working on the new songs and pretty excited about, um, playing them. And, and then it all kind of rapidly changed and, uh, navigating that was, uh, uh, kind of terrifying because it was people's, uh, livelihoods in the balance and, and the way we, think about the folks that come to shows and make plans and travel and, and all that was, uh, you know, when we made the decision, it was not popular even within our own little core group of folks here. I mean, it was, it was tricky. Uh, and that, that started on like a Thursday and I think we came in on a Monday and did the press release and it still felt, controversial and we were sticking our necks out and then by tuesday wednesday i think it was nba ncaa mlb everything had shut down everything had changed in a matter of two days and it's been you know changing ever since so it was it was tricky it was uh it was a bizarre set of circumstances and also being at that point washington state was the epicenter of the united states so um, leaving our families was going to be, was going to be tricky. Um, and it was going to be part of our job, but, um, in the end, it's, it's one thing it's, it's, it, at least we're, we're here at home and, um, uh, but still thinking about all those people out there whose plans and schedules got changed. I'm very appreciative that for the most part, we got a lot of support. Jeff, you were in, uh, you were in Washington, which really became the first, American place to to get hit pretty hard. Did you guys have a different perspective on what was happening because you were so close to it? Or like I'm in California, I was reading this stuff. Was it worse to actually be there or was it the same experience I was having? Yeah, I mean, there was there, there was real hysteria um, at, at that particular time in Washington. And I went back to Montana to actually see a couple of uh, Montana Grizzlies basketball games and there was nobody was talking about it here. And then when we started going down the road of possibly postponing the tour, um, I started calling, you know, anybody that I knew, I, uh, I'm friends with a guy in the NBA, Salvatore LaRocca, who's like the global guy. And at that time they weren't going to, you know, they weren't going to postpone any games. They were possibly thinking about playing games without the crowd. And, um, they were basically saying the East coast, there was, you know, there was no worries. So, um, 
it was, it was, it was a tough decision, you know, because of the place that we were living in at the time and, and what was going on, you know, people were dying every day and, and the, and the virus was spreading pretty fast. So it was tough. It was an amazingly fast, like hundred hours there. Cause I remember even that weekend, um, like my wife and my son went to the Clippers Lakers game on that Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I was at a soccer tournament outside LA with my daughter and she's banging bodies with 14 year old girls for an hour and a half. And all the parents are on the sidelines and, you know, we knew that potentially something bad was happening down the road, but it felt like something really started to shift that Tuesday. And then I think, you know, ironically for the three of us who are all big NBA fans, it was the Rudy Gobert moment that became the awakening for everybody. When that crossed over into sports and especially the NBA, that feels like the moment when everything changed. Were you guys watching that night? Yeah. I wasn't watching, but I'm, I'm good friends with Quinn Snyder and, um, Eric Waters, who's one of the trainers. And so when it all went down, I, I immediately called Eric up and said, what, what's going on? And he just said, we're in lockdown in the hotel right now and we're waiting to get tested. And it, it became apparent that at that particular time that the NBA was in big trouble. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eddie, what's, your responsibility as a band who has been at the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff, speaking out against certain things and um, whether it's political or even the Ticketmaster stuff, what's your responsibility now with a new album coming out? I know you guys aren't doing a lot of media, but what you have a huge social media feed. You guys are immensely popular all over the world. Like what, what are you looking at going forward as things you can do? Oh, shoot. Uh, you know, I, our job is always, I've, I've felt that, you know, where, where actually we are, you know, our natural habitat is either recording or, or playing live shows. So our thing was just, you know, the record comes out and then we go play a ton of shows and, and get the music to the people and get the energy going between, uh, uh, you know, everybody in the room, you know, transmitting the the music directly and and not having that, uh, not having that ability or uh, is is really uh, tricky for us. <laughs> and because um, the other stuff, you know, I, I think people get good at that stuff with practice. Um, I don't even necessarily want to get good at, I don't care about that kind of, it's probably, uh, you know, it's just not, I've never been kind of comfortable with the whole social media thing. Um, I feel like I have email and I have text and I have voicemail and that's my social media and I can barely keep up. So, um, you know, it's tricky. I, I think what I'm really left with is this this thing that we've been taken, we've taken it for granted, um, you know, this ability to gather in, in large groups and, and play things like, you know, concerts or attend sporting events or, you know, things where a whole crowd of people agree on something, you know, there's such a power to it and community and, and communal sharing of, of energies and music and, volume and rhythm and lyrics and all this stuff comes together and 
now you've got some kind of you know transmission of of communication and energies that that's so powerful and um and i guess you're right now that you'd have to maybe explore other ways of communicating through you know via skype or whatever but that's not um you know even doing this with you now bill is very different for us <laughs> right we're you know kind of reclusive by nature and 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 um and this uh you know this is so so in some ways it feels normal to be on you know away from people that's it's not necessarily out of my wheelhouse but um uh the ability when i i just keep thinking that first time that we'll get to be back in front of people and it's even hard to imagine when or how um but it's really it's going to be different and and um and it's not like we didn't appreciate it before i'm i'm just saying that now it's just even tenfold yeah i feel the same way because I think the last three weeks and granted there's a million things more important than just missing the ability to go to a concert, the ability to go to an NBA game, the ability to be home on a Wednesday night and pop on a TV and there's five NBA games I can choose from. But you realize (laughs) uh, the ritual of all this stuff is such a big part of it. Right. And you move from point A to point B to point C to point D as the, as the calendar goes along. And I, you know, I keep an Apple calendar like anybody else. And I remember like you guys were coming here in in early April and I was like, I'm definitely going to that. And then the NBA playoffs are starting too. And then all that stuff's gone and you're right. It really does make you appreciate this stuff. Jeff, when was the, what's the longest you guys have gone in the last 30 years without performing? Has it been more than like eight months? Um, It's probably been this stretch. It's probably been, I mean, it's been, God, how long has it been? It's been 14 months or something or yeah, 16 months or something like that. Really? So, so yeah. So, we, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a, I, I'm not the first guy in the band that wants to go out and do a huge tour. And so, but I'm actually, I was actually feeling like playing some shows. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I remember in 98, you guys took a break for a while and I'm sure there's been a couple other points but you know I was watching uh I I put in Pearl Jam 20 the documentary a couple days ago just to kind of refresh myself with some of the early stuff which I knew but I'm just getting older and I tend to forget (laughs) things and uh one of the things that's amazing about the three decades that you guys have had is just that there's footage of the entire time you know like when we were growing up you had these iconic bands and there's barely any footage of, you know, entire years of their career. There's one concert here or two concerts there, but really everything you guys did was videotaped for the most part, even like when you, (laughs) right after you guys got together, six days after the band formed, right? We've got it on beta videotape from 1991. (laughs) One of the things that shocked me was, you joined the band. I mean, it's a great story. I'm, I'm sure everybody knows it at this point, but pretty, pretty fluky how everybody gets together. But within six days, you're doing a concert. How did that happen that fast? What made you guys all say, yeah, screw it. Let's just go on a stage and do this. Yeah, I don't know. I, obviously, it was so early in my tenure that I 
don't think I was part of any decision-making process. So, Jeff, how did that happen? Yeah, Jeff, what I've, happened? I've been wanting to know that, too. <laughs> I, I, it could have been me. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I, I have no idea. I think, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's a part of me that probably, I think I thought that we sounded pretty good. <laughs> right. We, and that we should, like, test it in front of the, you know, 50 people or whatever. You know, so. But it wasn't it based that, on the Bible or anything. Like on the sixth day, you play a show. I mean. And on the seventh day, you go to a basketball game. Yeah, we saw the, the Bulls and the the Sonics were playing at the Kingdom on the seventh day, which is. I mean, you, you guys launched the band during one of the best, one of my favorite NBA stretches, actually. And then, you know, in the Pearl Jam lore. The initial initial name of the band was Mookie Blaylock. I was trying to figure out what current basketball player would be the equivalent of naming a band after Mookie Blaylock because he was like a borderline all star. Yeah, great name. I'm not sure who that would be. I'm trying. I'm racking my brain. Is it like? Is it? It's he. He was better than Patrick Beverly, but it was basically like if you would name the band Patrick Beverly now. <laughs> <laughs> That would be more controversial for sure. <laughs> That's true. Wait, so he just blocked it, right? He just threw his body in front of it. He didn't want it. Oh no, he was totally fine with it. He would have, I mean, he would have cashed in on it. I think if he, if he could have. <laughs> oh, so he was fine. So who was not fine with it then? Jeff, what was his middle name? Uh, well, Darren O'Shea. Right. Was his real name. Or Darren O'Shea. Darren O'Shea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What was the chain of events that led to everybody decided the band should be called Mookie Blaylock? I've never understood that. I figured it happened at like four in the morning, though. Well, Jeff, wasn't it just that we had um, basketball cards and uh, we were kind of passing between each other, collecting them. And, and then um, I think the cassette that we made, because we'd take home the record or the demos, the first record that we made on the fifth day or whatever. Then, um, then that car just fit perfectly into the cassette, and I think we ended up, me and or Jeff and I both ended up having the Mookie Blaylock card in our cassette. Isn't that how it happened? I think so, and I think I I, I think I remembered we gave Kelly a cassette, and it had the Mookie card in it. That West Coast Allison Chains tour, and he said we need a name this afternoon, and we were like. We don't have a name. <laughs> <laughs> That's and right. I, and I think it was just the proximity of, of the tape yeah. sitting there with Mookie's card in it. And it was, I remember it had a white background and he's doing like a finger roll. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. And we wanted to put a little bit more thought into naming the band. So we thought if we named it something like Mookie Blaylock, we could easily change it. <laughs> right. Were you guys playing hoops back then? Because Jeff, I know you play, but Eddie, you were like, kind of secretly playing back then right secretly playing well i i it, exactly because I, I i'd do midnight shifts at the petroleum company and then i'd get off at eight in the morning and by the time i got home i'd take my walkman in one hand uh cassette walkman and my left hand and then play with my right hand so i could play music and i remember listening a lot to uh bad brains and uh Mother's Milk, a uh, few different records are my favorite for playing basketball too. 
And so that's why Jeff knows that I absolutely have no left hand because I was always holding <laughs> the the cassette player. But I'd be up there, you know, at the the uh, local. Uh, there was a little park called Sunset Park in uh, near San Diego State kind of area down in San Diego. And I'd always have the court to myself, and and that was my thing, just to play by myself. And so, yeah, secret. No one knew. And then, you know, one cool thing, you cut to probably less than two years later, and we ended up opening for the Chili Peppers. I believe we were in Milwaukee, and whatever the little venue was, it was like a kind of a, th it was more of a theater, but they did have a, a hoop on the on the far end, on the back end. Right. And, and then the Peppers, so Jeff and I got a, after our sound check, Jeff and I grabbed basketball, we're shooting hoops. The Red Hot Chili Peppers are sound checking. They're playing the same songs I used to listen to on the cassette. <laughs> and I can use my left hand. Wow. <laughs> it's live. It's fucking live. It was so great. That was really one of those moments you thought, wow, like, I think we made it. You know, that was really one of the memories I'll never forget, but yeah, a combination of basketball and, and music. And, um, you know, who else I used to shoot around with cause we were in a group for just a tiny bit of time was Brad Wilk who ended up playing drums with, uh, rage. Um, oh, wow. and we used to have, you know, talk about the perfect day would be like, you know, playing music, playing basketball and maybe surfing, you know? Hey, Jeff, you got to give us the scouting report on Eddie because I can only <laughs> judge it from his behavior in concerts in the nineties where he's swinging from 50 foot lights. And I, I just imagine, um, he's pr probably pretty physical, right? Or like, give me the, who, who would you compare him to? Well, um, here. um, uh, well, he's, he's in really good shape. He's athletic, and he ha he's very has a very competitive spirit. So that's, uh, <laughs> that, that adds that, that adds up to a guy that you usually want in your team. He might be like a Patrick Beverly, actually. He's, he's oh wow, scrappy. <laughs> that's what he's saying. He's scrappy. He's a lot like Patrick Beverly. But well, plus you, the... you guys had you had the Gary Payton influence at the time too, right? He's doing a lot of trash talking, getting in people's face. No, and you're emulating never, him, probably. No, I would never trash talk. No. No. Um, no, but but what's the shot, Jeff? You said <laughs> that my shot. Who is it? George McGinnis. Do you know who that is? Oh wow, the one-hander. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. It's like I, I, it's more like I'm playing darts than basketball. <laughs> it's a, yeah. When you think about Seattle early nineties, everybody always talks about what an amazing music time it was, but it was also an amazing basketball time. And I always felt like the two things went hand in hand that decade, you know, they had Kemp and GP and some, some really great Sonics teams. They finally ended up making the finals, but they were really good there for five, six years. And more important, were just cool and, yeah, cool. and fit in with everything else that was going on. And when like you guys were in singles, and so was Xavier McDaniel, and it made perfect sense because it would have been weird to have a Seattle movie that didn't have some sort of basketball thing in there. But were you guys, were you embraced by the Sonics and the whole Seattle basketball scene back then? Or because Eddie has the Chicago ties, was he an outcast 
I don't I don't know how that worked out. Well, Jeff is the one who had season tickets from the get-go and lived about two blocks from the uh, Key Arena. So he was a staple. You know, he was, you know. And then, um, remember you knew the poster guy named George Costacos? Oh, the Costacos brothers, yeah. Was it George or John? I'm sorry. John, yeah, sorry. But that was like a big end to the, that we like knew somebody who knew people in the NBA. Um, wow. And we had those posters. In fact, at that off-ramp gig on day six or whatever, remember our backdrop was a poster of Barkley and a poster of Jordan. <laughs> we, we, we taped those up on the back. We needed inspiration. <laughs> Jeff, were you able to go to the to a lot of those Sonics games or were you guys always touring? I, prob- I probably went to 30 games a year, probably. You know, like, I mean, we were touring half the year and I think I had season tickets starting in... 92 or 93. Um, I, I mean, it, 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 it was such a, yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, I, I mean, that, that writing that first check that first year, I think it was like $18,000 for the season tickets. And it was like my hand wow. was shaky. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's good investment though. Yeah. But it was, it was the greatest. Cause that, cause starting in like 90, whenever George Carl came to town and, and camp and Peyton, I think they had the best record in the NBA like three years in a row leading up to those 96 finals. And it, you know, it was just like a highlight reel every night with camp on the fast break. Like he was just, you know, I mean, people kind of forget, like he was the second best player in the NBA for at least two years. Yeah. I mean, that, there's some good, there's some good stuff on YouTube, but now that basketball has gone away, all these games are just popping on NBA TV and all these different places now. And, and sometimes Kemp's kind of the lost guy from that era. Cause you're right. There was a moment when it seemed like he was going to be the successor to Malone and Barkley and all that stuff. And then, you know, it just never happened. Can, can you believe there's been a world now where for the last 12 years, we have not had a Seattle supersonics. Oh my God. 12 years already. Yeah. Good God. Do you acknowledge, do you acknowledge the Oklahoma City Thunder, Jeff? I I actually like the OKC Thunder. I'm one of the few. Um, it took me a, a couple years, but um, uh, it, it, you know it's it was you know we, I didn't have a team, so I had to I had to go somewhere, and I just ended up pulling for them. And, and they had a great team, you know, like you know the the KD Westbrook James Harden time. You know they were they were a pretty fun team to watch and. And they're still a fun team to watch. I mean, they don't have any of those guys. And Chris Paul's got that team playing really well. So, Yeah, they were a surprise success story this year. Um, the uh, I want to go forward to the new album and then I go backwards after. Um, you guys hadn't done an album for almost seven years. Was there a point, Eddie, where you just felt like that was it? There might not be another album? <laughs> or did you always know there was going to be another album? No, we always knew there was going to be another album. It was, uh, yeah, without a doubt. Um, yeah, I'm not sure the 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 timeline there. Um, if you say it was that long, it it went quick. Um, it did, and you know how it is. You you mentioned getting older yourself, Bill, and uh, uh. You know, time does go a little quicker as you get older and you have more, so many more responsibilities now. 
than those early days. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess we didn't, we didn't have to put anything out until we knew it was something, you know, that was going to be really great. And, and to take the time and, and we just, we came about it in a, in a different way. And we kind of ended up recording it in our warehouse. We kind of not just made a record or were attempting to make a record, but, but kind of building a studio at the same time and, and working in house and working with our, our crew guys who travel with us. Um, and, and that was our, our team. So it was kind of a, a, a different approach to, uh, using the studio more as a laboratory and, and, you know, one guy would come in and do a couple experiments and then the other <laughs> scientist would come in and check their work and look at the hypothesis and then add his bit to it. And, um, you know, we, we kind of tag teamed in that way and then stuff started just kind of growing and evolving. And then we'd go on tour and then we'd come back and it might take another month or two before we even started listening to it again. And, but we never said like, okay, you know, let's, let's get another six songs or let's cobble something together or whatever. It, it actually started to feel kind of important at some point. And, um, the results were surprising even us, um, because you said right before we started on air, you said, I really liked the record. And, and I was actually, Bill, this was you, 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 you said, you, you actually, you said, it's really, it's really good. It's, it's, and you sounded like surprised. I, <laughs> what the fuck? I guess I shouldn't have been. <laughs> I mean, my it's, attitude, it's actually, it's, it's actually really good. No, that's not how I said it. Look. I was looking at it from a standpoint God, of... you get that on tape? <laughs> yeah. From two... So you made Backspacer in 2009. And then you only made one album for the next 10 years. And I think, like a lot of people who love the band, I think sometimes you just wonder, oh, maybe they've just said everything they have to say. And you hear rumors like, oh, they're in the studio. Well, what does that mean? They, a lot of times they go in the studio, or any band does. Is anything going to come out of it? But then you came out of it with this, it seemed like, it seems like you actually had a lot to say. And, you know, I also think like, if you just look at the history of rock bands, once you pass that 20 year mark, it just, it, it seems like the degree of difficulty goes way up. I would honestly almost compare it to an NBA player. You know, you think about like Tim Duncan in the 2013, 2014 finals, where he's got 16, 17 seasons under his belt, but he's still able to summon this like top 10 ability, even though he's got all the, all, all of these games that he's already played. Um, I was surprised. I was surprised that <laughs> I was, I, told you. I was in a good way though. No, I, I mean, I like you guys it. must've been a little surprised, right? That you still had it to this degree. I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, I think I've always felt like, you know, I mean, everybody in the band is working on music all the time and everybody's doing side projects and has albums that they make. And there's always these little bits on everybody's own things where you go like, ah, I wish we could have snatched that and pulled that into the thing. And so, 
you see this constant growth happening individually and and you know that when we all get in the room together that's going to that's all going to come back to the center and that's sort of what happened to this record like um we just we, we you know we sort of allowed everybody to have a, a voice and in, in, in the direction and we fell in love with some things that maybe historically we wouldn't have we wouldn't have gone down those paths and I think we wrote, you know, some of the best stuff we've we've ever written. I mean, from my standpoint. So it, it also seems, seems like, you know, you hit you, if, if a band, band is together, together, I don't know. Usually, usually it seems like bands stay together five to seven years, and if they get lucky, maybe it ends up being a decade or two decades. But if it keeps going to the level you guys are at now, where you've hit your fourth decade. The friendships have to be there, right? Like it just wouldn't be fun to continue to make music with people that you were really tired of or you weren't friends with or, you know, it's almost like a marriage. Do you feel that way, Eddie? Is it is it like a marriage of multiple people? You, you know what? There's a scene at the end. Uh, Rush did that documentary. Um, I can't recall the title right off the bat, but it was this kind of all-encompassing, comprehensive documentary maybe put out three, four years ago. Um and I don't know if you know it, but the last scene, uh, I don't even know if they're running the credits. The last scene is just Getty and Alex and Neil just sitting at dinner and the cameras are rolling, but they, they're they just, they've been doing some interviews and now they're just sitting around drinking some great wine due to, it must be Getty's house. And, and it's just the three of them laughing and some of the jokes are a little bit inside to the three of them, you know, they're, they're brothers at this point but they're really enjoying each other's company. And, and there's something about that. There's something about it's, it's, it's really hard to um, even describe. It's just this thing. And, and I think that for at least like the last 10 years, I, I know Jeff and I have talked about it. A few of us have maybe talked about it. If, if for some reason, we decided not to play or we weren't able to play or whatever, that that was going to be the thing that we would miss. It, and it would be like a ball player saying, it's not necessarily playing the game that I miss. It's, it's hanging out with the fellas. Right. And, you know, as we travel and as all the in-between times or a- actually we kind of crack each other up like most of the time, you know, and then, and then we get serious. And then if it gets too serious, then it's time for, someone to make a joke um but it's a camaraderie and it's a you know between that uh that you brought that up and and again what jeff was saying about the musicianship is actually elevated and in the last you know 20 years we've we've actually gotten better at what we do <laughs> yeah and and he- maybe even lyrically too so it's 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 it it's with all those things, you'd think that we'd be able to make a, a great record, but there's always this, you just never know. And so I feel very lucky. There was some kind of also a little bit of magic or good energy or once we got it, you know, it it kind of, uh, it kind of started working itself out into something that we're proud of. One of the things I've always been fascinated about with, with bands specifically, and the comparison with uh, with NBA teams. Like you think about what happened with the Warriors, right? The last couple of years with KD, where 
that first year they were all together was magical and everything was in place. They're playing off each other. They're, they're friends off the court. It's just all working. They're complete selflessness. They all have the same goal. And then by the third year, KD just wants to leave and there's some sort of alpha issue and he wants his own team and now he's gone. And you see that happen with bands a lot. And I even think with your band a couple of times in the nineties where there, there's the chemistry has to kind of recalibrate, but you had a couple of moments like that. Like in, in the late nineties, it seemed like, you know, you guys didn't break up, but it seemed like it was pretty close. And one of the things that a bunch of people said was you just weren't hanging out in the same way. Right, Jeff? Well, the, I mean, the nineties, I mean, that was a tough time. Um, th- there was a big transition from, you know, working a day job and, and, uh, you know, being a struggling musician and having, you know, just trying to get shows for your band. All of a sudden we're on tour with the Chili Peppers and we're going to Europe and we're on Lollapalooza and we're, you know, it's like all of a sudden the world's our oyster and then it really blows up and we go home and all of a sudden you can't go to the store without like 10 people stopping you to talk to you and, and life gets complicated and, and I, and I started just like bailing. I started going to Montana, which is where I grew up just to get away from it. And I think there was, a, there was a, maybe a little bit of a problem with that because I was just like, I was just bailing on the whole thing. Like I was like, I, I just took myself out of the loop. And so even if there was an opportunity at that point to, to talk through things, like I just wasn't physically there. I, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. Um, and so um, it is sort of a miracle that we got through that. And I think, you know, maybe some of it was just giving each other the space to sort of go through, you know, the ind- individual fires that we were going through at the time. And, and, you know, somehow the music and that thing that we had just kept bringing us back together. And I think, I don't think we ever took any of that for granted. I, at least I never took that for granted. I, I knew that there was like, a real thing that happened when we were together. And, um, and I, I'd never felt that in any other band I've been in. And so, um, you know, thank God, you know, thank God, I mean, you know, things would be yeah. really different. Eddie, how close in the late nineties, how close do you think it was to the band not staying together? I, this is complete like brand new news to me. Like I, either I was just, I, and I was probably, is hard to uh i was having maybe as hard a time as any if not more so figuring it out at the time um but i just never felt like um that there was any kind of uh fragility in the band i mean i i don't think i mean we had a and we've never had like a knockdown drag out or someone left the room and we never talked to him again for six months. I mean, that's, that's going to never happen, but, um, you know, a general distancing, you know, we were practicing social distancing <laughs> You're early on it. Yeah. <laughs> early. <laughs> and again, this reclusive nature and, and Jeff kind of built his place and I kind of started building my place and it all seemed a little crazy at the time. Um, you know, because I, I was even having a hard time. It sounds so funny now. It, it just sounds funny. And, it, and then 
and looking back and reading an interview where you complain about you know success i i get it and 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 i get how that came off um but it was it, it, it was difficult and and it was weird and it wasn't what we were used to or it wasn't something we were going to get used to <laughs> right more importantly um so well, yeah i just remember i remember just as a fan of the band from the get-go it, around the mid nineties, just being concerned. Cause it didn't seem like, <laughs> it didn't seem like you were so enjoying. <laughs> no, it, it didn't seem like you were enjoying it. You know? And I remember I was reading all this stuff and the music coverage was great back then. And, you know, I'm sure everything wasn't a hundred percent true, but we had, it was a little pre-internet, but we had Rolling Stone and we had spin and we had MTV. And I felt like I had a pretty good handle. There were good magazine features back then. And you seem like some, especially after the Time Magazine cover, where you were like, I just never wanted the band to get this big. I don't know how this happened. And I remember in the moment thinking, oh, fuck, he's he's going to just, he's just going to go away. He's going to leave. He's not going to like this. But it doesn't sound like you ever felt like you were that close. Oh, well, personally, yes. <laughs> but with the band, you know, you said the band breaking up. Uh, no. So for me, maybe that was just me getting through whatever the complications were. So I, I now I understand your your theory a bit more. But um, yeah, no, I was I was losing my mind, and and I wasn't the only one. Yeah. So, um, but I'll take credit or responsibility uh, for all my, uh, you know, that time. Um, but. Well, I mean, you were a young guy at the time with, with had a million things going on that you probably never expected. But I like, what would you tell yourself? You go back to 1994. What would you tell yourself? Well, I, I don't know if I would. But first of all, me in 1994 would not have listened to me. <laughs> I wouldn't listen to anybody. <laughs> Which is also why if I'm around like a younger group or whatever, I, I make sure not to, you know, if there, if I have like a, even a constructive criticism, I just won't say it because they're not going to listen and they shouldn't, they're going right. to do their own thing and figure it out on their own. Um, and then we'll have a laugh about it later, but, um, and I'll show them my journal entry after, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, you know, in the end, I, ah, uh, you know, in between the fights of Ticketmaster, you know, again, take, you know, not taking your, the ability to gather in large groups, uh, for granted, you know, that, that was kind of being taken away from us a little bit, or we certainly had to fight in a different way. And that, that was just, that started out very basic. That was a very small thing about surcharges and how much money and compared to the percentage of what was on the ticket price, which we were keeping ticket prices low. I mean, it was a basic small argument that turned into this whole other thing that we had to deal with for quite some time. And, um, and we're proud of it now. And, um, of course things have evolved in crazy ways since then, but, um, even to now where we work with some of these people, because obviously there's new people working for the same companies, but they're, you know, we're still trying to do the best thing for the people that come see our shows. We're still, you know, that's never changed. Um, 
but at the time, you know, if I could have said anything, you know, things like, you know, if you saw your, your, you, you know, it was weird just being co-opted. That's all I'll say. It was, it, 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 there was a, whether it was, and it was the whole scene in a way, you know, because they had all these, these great, great bands and then great bands from here that, that never kind of got pushed through to that, um, bigger stage kind of thing like the fastbacks or my i mean the list goes on super suckers and mud honey and mud honey especially just this great group but I, I don't think they were interested in that kind of um mainstream thing and 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 that we all of a sudden were in we were we were kind of in that whether uh we're kind of swept up but um yeah what i i, I think the thing that uh trying to answer your question now finally succinctly is I would have said to the guy like, Hey, if, if you're freaking pictures on the side of a bus, just don't get that mad about it. Like don't take it personally. <laughs> right. If, if you're on a billboard and they didn't pay you for it, but it's somehow doing something and they're using your lyric and it's all to promote the radio station. Don't get pissed off about it. It's a radio station. It'll go away. There'll be someone else up there next week. Um, but I, I used to, or Time Mag, like that was a, I just kind of took it personally and and just felt like I wasn't built to handle it, you know. Jeff, there was, there was a lot of camaraderie with the bands of that era. And I know, you know, like Chris Cornell and Chili Peppers, you guys kind of all looked out for each other, um, which was not typical because the generation before you, everybody just wanted to kill each other and beat each mm -hmm. other. What was so different about that era? Why was it like that? Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure. I think some of it was coming up through punk rock and just, you know, in those early shows in Seattle, like at the Metropolis and the Gorilla Gardens and, and the Central Tavern and the Ditto Tavern. Like it, it was, it was such a, all for one, one for all thing. It, you know, I mean, half the people in the crowd were in bands that that we liked, and and so you got used to just sort of like being friendly with the bands that you were playing with because it was all local bands and they were all your friends, and and so when it when it became time to kind of jump up to the next level and to do it nationally. And then to be asked to go on tour with the Chili Peppers and to have those guys treat us so well, and I mean, it was so, it really was just a dream come true to to do those forty shows, those initial forty shows, um, only weeks after our album came out, and um, you know, it, it it just it just set it really did just set the tone for how we wanted to sort of conduct ourselves and. And, and, you know, you witness bad things happening and you, you, if you get treated poorly as an opening band, our instinct was to like, we're never going to do that. If we ever get in that position, we're never going to treat the opening band like that. Or we're never going to treat, like, we would see bands treat their crew members like, and we'd be like, never gonna treat our crew like that. And um, so consequently, we have, you know, a band and a crew that is, is it's, it's one organism when we, and when we play shows and, you know, we've had people on our crew that have been with us for as long as the band. And even before Kelly, our manager has been with us from the beginning and, 
George and, all, you know, Kerry uh, Keys, who's been doing monitors from us from the beginning. Smitty, who's our tour manager, has been working with us from the beginning. I mean, it's like, it's such a beautiful thing to be working with people that you love and care about and um, have so much history with. And you've, we've gone through so much. We've witnessed so many amazing crowds and we've, and we've also been through some, yeah. some hard times. And so um, I just feel so lucky. I just feel so lucky to be, it's, you know, I think in that way it is like a marriage. Like if your marriage lasts 30 or 40 or 50 years, then you've, you've gone through the fire a few times and, and it sort of feels that way with, with this band. Eddie, when did you guys, when did you feel like the band was at the peak of its powers from a performance Yesterday. standpoint? <laughs> 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 no, it, it, uh, in concert. No, I was listening to our uh, rehearsal tapes. Uh, I was an organizer. So yesterday. Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, it's, it's sounding really good. Really good. All right, but I'm going back, like in the 90s, there's a lot of trial and error. You're answer. learning each other. No, I'm, I'm asking <laughs> in the 90s. Okay. In the 90s, like if you're an athlete. When did we peak like, in the 90s? Is that your question? It's not peak. It's when did you feel on stage like you guys were, you just you just knew what you were doing completely and totally as a band? Well, that's a different, like was, not knowing yeah, that was what my we're question. doing. Well, that's, yeah, because no, there's there's always going to be a part of that where we don't want to know what we're doing. You know, that's that's kind of why you know somebody said, you know, oh come on, you don't get nervous before you play, and I, I said actually, you do because there's something that's going to happen that you don't know what's going to happen, and and you want to be attuned to that, whether it's something good or bad or a thunderstorm at Wrigley or it's going to be a small kid with a sign with tears in his eyes on the, you know, that you can see from the, from the stage and he's in the the first few rows, you know, like, you you know, pick up on something that's going to change the show. That's going to be like some, there's going to be magic to be made, but you have to be attuned to it. So that's the, the nerve wracking thing is like, or, you know, and, and obviously we we throw something in the set list that's going to make us all pay attention, you know? right? And we're going to put ourselves out on a thing. So, so no, we still. I mean, we are we getting better at that? Maybe, but um, but okay. Don't know what we're doing. What was? And then again, the well, question. Here, I'll explain the question. Because if you're time. using the sorry, if you're using the basketball analogy, well, here we go. Like if if you throw a basketball <laughs> team together, it's going to take a couple years, right, before everybody completely has a feel for what everyone else is doing at all times. Or maybe music doesn't work that way. I don't know. You tell me. Okay. Um, well, you know, I, I I really don't know. I don't know. I think we've just been digging. I think that we're just enough balance between being, you know, much better musicians or, or, or having become been getting better this whole time. But we're, we're, we are a scrappy band. I think we're, we're pretty scrappy and we don't necessarily know all the notes. We don't know all the chords and, but we do get our, focus together and and our intentions are pure <laughs> and so then it's kind of where you see 
what happens with that. And I'm sure that we've gotten in our, ourselves into situations that, you know, on paper seem doable, or they said, yes, you could play, you know, whether it was in early days of festival with 70,000 people in Amsterdam and 90, whatever, two or one or something to, you know, would you play soldier field or, and then years later play shows at Wrigley or whatever you think like, that seems doable, but then when you get there and you realize how it's kind of sacred ground or whatever, then you really got to pull together in kind of some scrappy way. And you know who else gets credit for that is is the crowd. Our crowds are part of the thing. So yeah. they friggin' bring it. And then that allows us to do our thing. And then it's a communal celebration of, look, like we're all a bunch of scrappy folks out here. And look how it's, this is pretty good. we've done this together what is the exact best venue in your opinion your favorite type of venue to play is it a big 70,000 seat stadium is it an NBA arena is it a smaller venue like Jeff what what is like your dream venue if you're just like we're going to kick ass for the next three hours where is that well I mean you know for me it's uh, Madison Square Garden and Forum and the old Chicago Stadium and the old Boston Garden and it's it's those places. I mean, not only is it the places that I watched on TV when I was a little kid, watching like all my idols play basketball games at, but those those arenas sounded and sound amazing. Like, I mean, the Forum and Madison Square Garden are two of the best sounding arenas, and it's just you know the the show changes when everything sounds good, when you can hear everything and the crowd sounds great and it's not a big boomy box, you know? Um, so yeah. what about you, Eddie? Bill, all the, all the, all the old arenas, you know, Chicago stadium, Boston garden, the, uh, uh, the spectrum, you know, before they put in all the suites and the glass and the da da da, you know, that kind of changed everything as far as sound. Um, but all those old venues, they were, they were, I remember our sound guy kind of said like, you know, we've played some like, you know, like venues that look like fancy cars. Right. But then we get into this old rickety trolley and God, it sounds great. You know, the sound guys were just so excited, you know, after sound check, you're like, how's the sound out there? Like, oh my God, I wish we could play here every night. You know, are there any of those arenas left? Well, I guess you'd have to go old school, right? Yeah, the forum, but it just got bought by the Clippers owner. God only knows how long it's going to be around now. Didn't he say he's going to keep it for a concert venue? <sighs> I hope so. I, I never trust any of these people with any of this stuff. You know, I think if he's building a brand new basketball arena, that's going to be the state-of-the-art Clippers arena. Isn't He's going to need a parking lot. Mo- <laughs> yeah, isn't the move to knock down the greatest Lakers memory place and turn it into a parking lot. It seems, I don't know. I worry about it. I, I think that one is probably out of all the ones I've been to recently. That one was good. I was really impressed by the Warriors arena. I know you haven't played there yet, but I think they did put a lot of thought and care into how it would sound. It's still new. It's still got suites and stuff, but I do think they put more attention into that stuff than, uh, some of the later arenas have had, but I'm with you, like the garden, Chicago stadium, the spectrum, those were, those are the OGs. So you guys would rather be indoors than outdoors, it sounds like. 
Well, there's, and then you, and then you go to the other side and, and then you might be, um, and, and mind you, we feel so fortunate to be able to say this, even that, that when you play for maybe a hundred thousand people in Brazil and they're all getting along incredibly and they're singing along to the very back and you can see the sound wave when they clap, you know, they can, you can see the, uh, time lapse of the sound to the drum beat as they clap. Um, you know, it's like that's that's inspiring too and then a small club like when you get into something small or play a solo show or the communication in a in a quiet room and you know it's it's nice to have all you know uh, be so fortunate to have these different experiences um you know jack johnson he loves to play outside he wants every show to be outside and to me, I just, I, I'm checking the weather like the week before, just, oh, you know, we've Get been, nervous. we've been through a couple weather things and, um, Wrigley was one of them the first time we played Wrigley. And, um, you know, in the end is this kind of miraculous event that took place and the owner of the Cubs, Tom Riggetts had to <laughs> go toe to toe with the, uh, all the powers that be to allow us to do that and, and risk his reputation in the neighborhood and the whole thing. And, and, um, he had the courage and guts to back us up and that was incredible. It turned out. Okay. Ernie said, let's play two. And we were like, let's play till two. And it, <laughs> it was, it had some symmetry to it, you know, and yeah. Ernie Banks was there. And Ernie, Ernie was going to be the next song when our security guy said, I, we're going to have to shut it down now. Ugh. Um, and then I spoke to the crowd and then we kind of figured it out and everybody had to move off the field into the, and now it's not a big enough venue to hold everybody in those small concourses. Uh, the friendly, but tiny confines, you know? Um, yeah. But then looking back, so all these years later, you can look back and, and Ernie was going to be next. He was going to stand up there with me and do all the way and all that. So we played 20 minutes and then Ernie was going to come up and now, and Ernie's pretty frail at that point, you know, and, um, and he went up in our kind of dressing room area and, and I said, Hey, Ernie, I don't know how long this is going to go. I just talked to the head meteorologist. It might be an hour. It might be two, but just so you know. Um, it's going to be a while. And, and he looked at me and then he looked over at the table and he says, is, is that red wine? <laughs> I, said, I said, yeah. He says, I'll have me a glass of red wine. <laughs> and in between talks with the chief of police and the meteorologist, I keep coming back to Ernie and we had, you know, a solid hour, if not 90 minutes, you know, going back and, and talking baseball with Ernie at Wrigley Field. It was, yeah. The, uh, the way you guys have evolved with the, with the concert albums, which were initially, initially bootlegs. And I remember in Boston, there was a store that used to have the bootleg CDs. It was near, near Boston University in the mid nineties. And then all of a sudden everybody kind of realized we should start maybe getting a couple of these out, but it seems like, you know, I think there's been a couple of bands that have been really, uh, I don't want to use, say the word reinvigorated, but it's enhanced by this huge concert library where I think Springsteen, uh, the Grateful Dead, uh, where you have like, you, you guys have a serious channel where 
you know, you could pop on there and it's just all these different concerts from all these different years and dates and venues. When did you, when did you guys fully embrace that aspect of this whole thing, that this was one way to really extend the run in all these different ways? Well, Jeff, I don't remember what, what exact year it was, but I know for a fact, and we, we'd go to, what was it, Camden Market in London? We were, we were voracious with, you know, finding bootlegs. A lot of them were on cassette, and, you know, some of my early ones were vinyl, you know, uh, Who at Madison Square Garden on vinyl. Um, you know, all this, this vinyl live bootlegs. And then, and some of them sounded like shit, but they were great. You know, they were, you know, if you put your headphones on, you could, your ears would acclimate and you were there, you know, even if right. you could hear the guy talking to his girlfriend, you know, halfway through behind blue eyes or some shit. But, um, but <laughs> we, I think we started hearing some of ours and I think the idea was just that we could put them out at better quality. Yeah. And, and, and I think we allowed a taper section, remember, or didn't we say if you wanted to tape, you could. And so we made it okay. Um, now we weren't, and I, and I used to do the same. I used to sneak tape records and, and, but I worked at Long's Drugs, so I, I would get, 10% 10% off at the or cost plus 10% in the photo department, right? For some of the early recording Walkmans and then in stereo. Oh my God, come on. It was a great time to be alive <laughs> and, <laughs> and recording the shows and never sold one and never every once in a while, someone, if they really earned it and really loved the, the, the group or were there, I would make them a cassette, you know, very rare, but it was just for me just to relive and relive. Cause even the best show is going to go away after a little bit, you know, just the the best show, it's going to go away. There's going to be another one that takes the place of it or something. But this, you always, you just always had your own personal document. So I, I always believed it was a, something important for people to be able to have. Now, now, do I agree with now that they want to film the whole thing with their phones and hold it up in front of the person behind them the whole time? That Now I feel a little differently about that, but... And Jeff, so when was it? When I think I think around 94, 93, 94, we asked Brett to take out those eight ads. <clears throat> um, That's right. Yeah. And a lot of it was from a lot of it was from going into record stores and seeing like, I mean, I remember going into places in New York and there'd be like forty shows on double CDs, and there would be like forty dollars, and oh right, you, they you'd were buy a couple too, of them, yeah. and they they sound terrible. And so I think we went to the record label with the idea at least a good year before it actually happened, you know, that we wanted to do this thing. And they were, they were fairly reluctant to begin with. And then, <laughs> right. and then we thought we sold a shit ton of them and, and then they were on board <laughs> magically. So. I think we're in the Guinness book of world records because we, the, the day we released like 10, bootlegs or whatever they all went into the top i don't know 100 or top 50 we were like the only group to ever have 10 records in the top 20 wow. or so yeah something funny the the whole so youtube comes 2006 and now anytime a band is playing anywhere you can go find the concert on youtube within a few hours or you can find a song or you can find a moment how aware are you or are you guys of 
of that whole thing. And can you, you mentioned you could see the people holding their phones. Like you must hate that because you, you're trying to connect with all these people. And meanwhile, they're just pointing a phone at you. Well, and the other thing, well, I'm, I'm also worried about, again, the person behind them because that's, it's just annoying. And you know, they're trying to watch you and then there's like a little you in front of, you know, just whatever. Yeah. But, um, it sucks. But the, the, the biggest thing going back to or the initial construct of this idea was that it would sound better. And these phones, they're going to, you know, or, or, you know, maybe they'll start recording and, you know, if they recorded in stereo, it might be a little better. Yeah. I don't, I don't like it. And I listen if any band was ever going to pull off, nobody can hold their phones up in front of them during our concerts. It's you guys. So I, I you might or have Jack to White who just it. takes them away. You just oh, got to <laughs> put them in a bag when you get into the show, which is really, oh, God. it's good thinking, but it's, you know. What? I got to ask both of you this. This is just a super nerdy Pearl Jam question because I have my own answer and I'm not in the bin. Um, <laughs> what, what song in your entire catalog do you feel like hits the crowd the best? Right, what, what song what, what, resonates with the crowd that they're, they're involved, you're involved. It's like a whole, it just, the song is better because they're there and you're there and it just goes to another level. What's the song? What's your answer? My answer is porch. Oh. It's a little off the grid, but I think the crowd, there's a couple of parts. I was where just the hoping crowd... you'd say one that I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Good answer. But Good answer. Porch is, a, it's, a, it's an OG song, but also I think the crowd feels a real responsibility at a couple points to go up a level for you. So that, that would be, that was my answer. What's oh, your cool. answer? Um, I'm going to pick a Jeff song. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but well, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, there are, there are certain staples, but yeah, go Jeff. I was going to say, you know, what song that I, that I think about, it was the second time that we played Buenos Aires. And when we played evolution that it felt like, we were on another planet and something <laughs> there was like energy happening at that particular moment that I'd never witnessed before playing music. And it was because they were singing every counter melody and guitar melody. And they were singing I mean, the guitar like, parts. <laughs> it was awesome. It really was one of the most unbelievable things. And so yeah, I, I got, I got two thinking about it. I remember. And well, then, and then that song at the garden, we were playing the garden. I don't know how long ago, 15 years, 10. I don't know. And, um, we're playing and all of a sudden the, the stage started like something was happening. I didn't, you didn't even know if it was the, you didn't know what was happening, but your balance was off. Like something, and all of a sudden you realized the stage was moving. So you kind of like, lean down as if you were on a surfboard and a, on a bumpy wave, like lean down. And I felt the ground and I was like, what the fuck's going on? And didn't know if it was an earthquake or like, don't panic. Maybe it's a train, but we had played there before. I'd never felt it. And I looked back at Matt and he looked at me like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> and he's on his kit and the cymbals are swaying. And, and we're like, 
what the fuck is going on? And the whole the whole floor, the garden, the whole stage was was bouncing up and down, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. From a New York crowd to get them that excited. That's that's pretty good. I only went to one basketball game when that happened. When uh, in 87, when Bird stole the ball against the Pistons. <laughs> and I was there at the Boston Garden. <laughs> wow. And I actually, I actually thought the garden was eager to say like, wow, the garden's going to collapse. Like jokingly, like it really actually did seem like it was going to collapse. Like the thing was shaking. So I, it, it was the only time I ever remember that happening. Um, I got to ask you guys about rock bands just in general, because we don't have a lot of them anymore. And you came from this era where, you know, one of the great, rock eras we've had that four or five year stretch that was just just absurd um and you came from an era where when you want to get into music the thought was i'm going to be in a band and i'll be a guitarist or i'll be a singer or whatever and now over the last i would say 15 years way less rock bands obviously hip-hop rap all that stuff has has become entrenched and you see a lot more solo acts and things like that we don't have that next wave of of giant rock bands, what happened, and do you think that will ever come back? So, Jeff, you can answer that first. Man, I I mean, I I think there's more great music now than there's ever been. Um, I don't know if I don't know if um, there's a big rock band, you know, uh, movement happening right now. But I mean, there's a there's a there's a punk uh, movement happening right now, like in Ireland and England, where there's uh, uh, a bunch of bands, the Idols and Murder Capital, Fontaine's DC and Shame, um, that who I think that are making really important music and sort of their ethos is seems really similar to ours in terms of like um, that it's we're we're there's a bigger picture involved than just uh, playing a rock show and and getting drunk and and whatever. So, um, I, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, I, I don't, I don't know when, if guitar music is gonna, you know, I, I would guess at some point people will be tired of like their Ableton and their pro tools and, you know, somebody will just start writing like really great, you know, heavy rock riffs again. I, it seems like it sort of has come and gone a few times since the sixties. So Eddie, what do you think? Yeah. I, I think I think right before even that era of of uh part of it was um the Seattle bands and before that there was talk of of you know synthesizers taking over the world and um you know maybe it's it's cyclical um you know for me and I think, you know, I see it with my daughters or their friends or, you know, young kids. There's there's still, you know, you go see Jack White, the raconteurs or, or Jack White, any any um, formation. Um, there's just something about human beings playing the shit out of their instruments, working their asses off. <laughs> singing moving playing like you know this this thing there's just something about it that just never it's always gonna that's always gonna be for me the the greatest thing you know part of it is the effort you're seeing the the effort you know i probably don't 
have a big appreciation for like a, a DJ type scenario because I don't see the effort. <laughs> the effort right. must have it happened because obviously it's some impressive music with rhythms and beats and it's moving these people and the whole thing and and the effort was put together before he got there or she or but to kind of you know hit a button and wave your arm around for me that's just not gonna you know it 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 needs to be you know some of the best shows i've seen are are like mud honey in a small place this band dead moon this three piece i mean that was the it's just so real just so real the humanity of it you know like i want the humanity and I, and i think that for me that only comes from you know hands on a guitar and 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 the drummer working his ass off and um and that you know i mean the the fugazi shows were would change your life you know you could you could see them and and if you never had seen them before you could maybe had never even heard a song before if you went into that room that was $5 all ages and saw what these four people did with plugging straight into their amps, you know, two guitar amps, a bass amp, and a drummer, it it changed your life. Like, changed your life. And there's just, you know, I've never seen anything like it. The Who, for me, again, another band that would change your life with uh, four guys up there playing their heart out. I th- my hope is that it comes back. My son is 12 and he's been playing the bass for the last, I don't know, 10 months. And he's really into it. And I do feel like this stuff's cyclical to some degree where you start, you start zagging because everybody is zigging the other way, you know? And, and as you said, going on stage and just playing a song to a group of people, the old school way, the way the connection with the fans, I still feel like that's going to win, but it also worries me how easy it is to make music now where, you know, all you need is a beat. You can be on a computer. It could be one person, it could be two people. Whereas, you know, 30, 35 years ago, you, you, you kind of needed all the pieces and you needed to get together. Like even when Jeff and stone were trying to figure out what to do after mother love bone, like they needed a singer, right? There was like, Jeff, what, what would you have done if you didn't find Eddie? What, what would have, how would have the next, two years have looked like i probably would have gone back to art school <laughs> i mean so, you know that 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 first few so months i ruined an, a know? great artist career oh, man. <laughs> unbelievable no, no. they would show you'd be shown in galleries across the world i could just tell you that right now <laughs> well you would I mean, not I mean, have failed at that few, yeah well there was a, there was a few things that happened i i, I started playing um, there was this band called War Babies in Seattle, and I was really good friends with Richard Stuberud, who's the drummer in that band. And I just started jamming with him, and I played I played a couple of shows where they needed a, a bass player. And just getting in a room with a drummer and playing with them and like trying things, it sort of made me fall in love with playing again, and it and, and it felt free and um, just the idea that you could on any given day you can get together with another person or three or four other people and you can create something out of the ether that, you know, gives you energy to go into the next day. It's, it's, um, for lack of a better word, it's such a gift, you know, like, and, uh, 
that's that's the that's still the best thing it's still the best thing is like yeah. just showing up and going like what are we going to do and at the end of the day going like holy shit look what we did you know like <laughs> right. yeah. where did this where did this come from you know and it's you know it's like it's our magic it's our god it's our the spirit that we feel and it's like it's uh it makes life worth living like and it makes you want to live life and it makes you want to do better and do more things and help people and all the things that we've gotten to do with the band and um you know i I just feel so lucky the new album how long what was the process how many months or years before you settled on it's 12 songs was so what was <laughs> what was the journey uh it really just it it just it kind of grew on its own like i i don't that's a, it's a good question but um as i was referring to before there was you know we were kind of piecing together a studio on our own we it just started different and it ended different and everything that happened in the middle was different and um and that's what felt great about it that um you know and at some point we we had to finish because you know there was you know at some point we we zeroed in and thought okay i think we i think we got this and now let's let's nail these these bits and bits and pieces and this is almost there and this one's this one's halfway there um that one's there that one's there um but actually let's get a mix on that and then see. So it, 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 it was, I guess this last year, um, this last fall, I think we really leaned in heavy and hard and, and gave ourselves a little bit of a deadline finally. Um, which was cool. I thought it was very mature and a grown up of us to say, okay, now let's, you know, give us, let's, let's actually finish. Cause that's, that can be the hard part. All that other stuff, again, like Jeff was saying, it's, it's, so fun and and the best and then and then after all that fun then there becomes this part about like okay now it has to be we have to set it down in concrete and then those are decisions that are a little tougher to make than you know the rough mixes and the demos are just like oh this is great this is great but you know not quite there but but then that that finishing process is a little tougher so once we got through that you know that that's the end of the process that was um it it was hard but but not the worst thing ever and um the results were all stuff that we were happy with and i got to say that um some of that stuff or even sequencing uh talking i I'd, I'd come together with an idea for the fellas and and they just immediately agreed they're like yep you did it you did your homework and i think that you know there might be a tweak here and there but i'm just saying it was an agreeable process and which that can be frightening, you know, if we're all using our voices, <laughs> uh, then that can be scary because uh, we might not agree. But in this case, we all did, which made what could have been really hard not that hard at all. How do you decide what the order of the songs are and how much thought do you put into that? Because the first song on this album is Whoever Said... And it's a banger. It just, it sets the tone. And I, I, I feel like it was an important choice as the first song, which I think you guys have done over the years. That first song is kind of gives you a sense for what's about to happen. But I, what's the process for that? 
Shoot, I, I it, at some point it's just kind of, you know, dis- you just kind of know distillation. You know, you you it kind of certain things find their spot. You know, it's like a set list, and I and I think that's why they maybe, um, uh, let me take a first crack at some of that stuff is because of the whole set list thing. So in a way, you know, the record is going to be because we still make records to be listened to. Not that everybody's going to listen to a record from, you know, track one to 12 in a row and da 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 or side a side B or there, but we still make them in, in case somebody does want to listen to it like that. That's how we make them. And, um, but in a way it's it's also like a live show it would be you put the songs together in a way that that have a flow and a energy and then they the one song passes the torch to the next and um yeah it's it's a it's a thought process that really i think um you know i think a lot of it comes back to keeping score uh when i was a little kid to in baseball games you know, there's a, there's a bit of an accounting that happens or when we do set lists or we're going to play four nights at the spectrum or something and try to play as many different songs as we can. And there's that accountant thing that, that obviously I wasn't good at math and didn't go to school for accounting, but what I did do is stare at the scoreboard at Wrigley field. And, um, you know, I think that really helped me like just some of those things as a kid that you do that you never thought would come in handy. Um, yeah, I still feel like that's a big part of it. Yeah, I think we've lost out. Hello? <laughs> Did we lose you? <laughs> I think we've lost out. Maybe he'll jump, jump back in. Oh my God, we we, I Bill? started talking about baseball and he was like, I'm <laughs> Basketball, <laughs> but it's hard. Do you keep score at a basketball game? I, I I did keep score for like when I was in junior high. Uh, there had to be a scorekeeper for the mm. high school games, and I would keep I would keep score for those. Oh, nice! But they don't sell like um, scorecards at a basketball game, like pencils and a scorecard. No, yeah. No, there's like there's like. The high school team would have like a scorebook that you know they yeah. would use. But, but there was a there was a similarity of the baseball thing. There were like these, you know, certain little icons, and you put an X or just a single oh, slash nice. for certain things. And if you if they shot free throws, it was a slash, and how many free throws they shot with the. Wow, what, wasn't cool. as wasn't as developed as baseball, probably because it's the game moves so much faster, but. um but the baseball score keeping thing is, you know, I think I could have gotten really into baseball had somebody showed me that, you know, and I, and had, I had a team to go see. <laughs> right. Well, and it's detailed, but the thing is there's time you can, you can catch up, you know, it's slow enough yeah. where you can, you can take a second to write the uh, six, four, three and da, 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 blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I, and I was, I was into all that stuff. Like I had all those, I think we've talked about this, but I had all those who's who in baseball, who's who in football, who's who in basketball. And I would stare at, I mean, I read those things every night before I went to bed for like five years. Like, didn't you used to, I think we did the same thing. Didn't you used to cut out when they'd have like Monday night football, you'd cut out the roster of the TV TV guide. guide. (laughs) Oh yeah. 
No, I, I love the TV guy. It had the helmet. He tried to get as many. Yeah. Man, you just missed the best conversation. <laughs> Did, just keep it going. Can we can we keep it in? <laughs> my yeah, we, AirPods we, we, died. We turned it around to basketball, so you'd, you'd rejoin us. We were talking about baseball oh my for God. a second, but Come on. we lost you. But now yeah, we're my, back on basketball. I, I made the mistake of trusting these AirPods, and all of a sudden, they just I couldn't hear yeah. anything anymore, and they were gone. So fortunately, my daughter had a pair of AirPods. Thank God for her. Oh, look at that. Um, where do we leave off? Did, did I miss anything? Oh, I told kind of a boring story about uh, setless and um, <laughs> baseball scorekeeping. Um, but hey, oh, can I can I can I uh, can I direct the conversation for just one second, Bill? Would you? You can take it the rest me? of the way. Take us home. No, 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 no. Um, but I was just talking to. I found a trophy in a in an old like shop, or like a vintage shop or whatever. And it was for nineteen seven. I had to buy it because it was nineteen seventy five punt pass and kick award. What <clears throat> for a nine year old? Which yeah. would have been how old I would have been. So I was like, okay, I got to buy this fucking thing. And 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 if people think that I earned it, I'll I'll maybe let them run with it for a minute, and I'll, I'll eventually tell them the truth. But Jeff Amon. He's got three of those things, and he didn't buy one of them. Jeff Amon, do you remember this? I don't, Bill. I don't. You said you're getting old. I don't know how old you are, but do you remember the punt, pass, and kick thing? Not only do I remember it, I loved it. Oh, it was geez. it was always third quarter of whatever playoff game, and I was always I couldn't wait to see who made it. Yeah, here it we go. So Jeff Amon has three of those fuckers. Three of those. What? I could tell he's a. I could tell he was a good athlete because in the Cameron Crowe documentary, they show him playing basketball, and he just casually does this lefty layup. That is one of those like very subtle. Oh, this guy definitely plays basketball the way he did it. So I could tell. I could tell there was a coordination level in place. But uh, that was my dream as a kid. That would have been the dream. And then uh, we actually, I I brought it up yesterday and. And what was the story, Jeff? Like you actually would have gone to the Monday night football thing in Denver. Yeah, there was a, yeah, the, I, I, I won my little regional one and the winner was supposed to go to Denver and I can't remember who they, who they played. And I, and we, I just couldn't afford to, we couldn't afford for me to go to Denver, you know, with one of my parents, it was, I don't know what it would have cost at that point, like probably a thousand dollars or $800 or something. And, Oh, but I remember man. watching the game and, and sort of being a little bit disappointed <laughs> that, I, that I didn't get to meet Floyd Little, you know, or whoever. <laughs> uh, and they sent the second place guy. Yeah. Jesus. And his name was Little Dan, Danny Marino. <laughs> <laughs> Young Johnny Owe. <laughs> hey. Jeff, how how has Eddie's personality changed since the Cubs won the World Series? Like much more peaceful, <laughs> serene. What's he like now? Yeah, it's so easygoing. Last few years, I kind of I'm a I'm a giant Red Sox fan, so I I think of when we won in 2004. It was like a before and after. It completely changed my perspective on everything. I, I honestly was worried that I was going to live my entire life and die and not see them win the World Series. 
And I'm sure you felt the same way with the Cubs. It just, everything felt different after and it's sports and it's stupid, but it also isn't stupid because that's how I feel. But let me ask you this. Did you go through a time when you, all of a sudden you won and then that kind of, then a month later you're like, but wait a second, this is like part of my DNA. Like I'm no longer the underdog. Like, like, Oh yeah. Did that kind of mess with your psyche a little bit? Cause you're like, this is strange. I never, I never felt this way before. <laughs> Not only that, it, it felt like I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, even though it was already good and, and good things had happened and I was in the clear. But your instinct as when you when you're just this beaten down sports fan is just to assume everything's gonna go wrong. We had like this unbelievable run with Boston sports where yeah. you know, the Patriots became America's villain. They won six Super Bowls. The Red Sox won four World Series. But the, the DNA is yeah, and the Bruins won one and then the Celtics won in two thousand eight. So we won in every sport. But the DNA for that all of the 2000s was like, oh, something's bad's going to happen. And you're like, wait a second, why am I worried? We've already won like four titles. It was weird. It was weird to shake it. So what, I never thought I would see it. What if after the Boston, they win for the first time and Theo and the whole thing, and then they win for the first time, Ortiz, the whole thing, and then you've you've been champion for a month, maybe two, you've broken the curse, and then they came out and said, they were hitting a trash can, we have videotape. That's a tough one. Yeah, I mean, so. Who destroyed you? I think about we, the Houston fans. I mean, it must, you know, they don't, we had a, they didn't We know. had a piece of it with the Patriots where everybody thought they cheated and some of the stuff's been debunked, but you get super defensive when it's your team. You just, you think it's, no, no, they, they're making this up. They're framing us. This can't be true. And you start talking yourself into, uh, into not being as bad as they're saying or whatever. The Astros thing is really tough because there's just overwhelming evidence. Plus the way the other players turned on them was kind of unprecedented. Never seen anything like it. So which which part of Spygate got debunked? I didn't hear that. Well, people think they taped the Rams practices and that was definitely 100% debunked. That did not happen. Uh, the thing that definitely happened was they taped the first Jets game when they weren't supposed to and they paid the penalty. Deflate gate was, I don't know, that one, uh, that was pretty flimsy. Still, still not sure what the evidence was with that one. But look, do I think Belichick's trying to get an edge in every possible way? Of course. You know, I'm, I'm sure there's stuff he's done that hasn't been reported. But yeah, that if I feel bad for the Dodgers fans because they haven't won since 88. And, you know, now you look at the two, they lose to the 2017 Astros who destroy you, Darvish, and... You know, that was when it turned for Kershaw too. And now, now you think like, oh, they were cheating when they kind of ruined our, 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 our nucleus basically. So yeah, pretty tough. What do you think, Eddie? Well, we, we, you know, then we, the Cubs got Darvish and he was still kind of processing <laughs> yeah. what he had been through. So, you know, it affected, you know, even other teams post script. So um, I, th I actually think that the penalties should be extremely harsh for that kind of thing. And I know you're talking about sports and edges and, and that everyone, you know, there's little things that they're trying to do that are maybe, uh, you know, working outside the lines just a little bit, but 
um, for you know the legacy of the game and the whole. It's it's kind of important stuff. 160 games a year and all these kids keeping score and all these record books and all these people that know the stats and they say that the baseball fan is the most intelligent of all the fans because of all the stats they got it. Johnny Ramon taught me that. Mm. Um, you know, there's and and then it just lays all that to waste. Um, you know, I, I, I was wondering why they didn't vacate it. Like how they do in college where, you know, it happened, they got to celebrate it, but then baseball just doesn't acknowledge it. It made me wonder if one of the reasons they didn't do that is because way more teams were cheating than just the Astros. They were just the ones that were the most blatant, but you would think if they were the only ones cheating, everyone else would have really banded together and, and and tried to get them. But my guess is they're all doing something, right? Well, they're using technology to to forward their uh, ability to, you know, lock down a pitcher or a delivery or whatever. I've I've seen some of that stuff, and and they all seem to have that technology, or maybe some teams are ahead of the curve on that than others. Um, you know, there's different edges, but I, maybe it was just, that it was so, um, and kind of in an old school way, it, it was so old school, like bang on a trash can. <laughs> right. It's just like, it's yeah. just kind of, uh, crazy to think about. And, and if you're a pitcher, it's gotta, it would, it, that's just making you crazy. It's gotta make you crazy. Well, you think like baseball has taken so many hits with the integrity. This was the last thing it needed. You guys don't have this in music. Performance enhancing drugs are allowed. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure how you would really cheat in music against, I, I guess you could maybe game download streams or something, but. Um, I think lip syncing, I think, I think, you know, Millie Vanilli and. Oh yeah. And they got caught there. Oh, they hit the trash can hard. Yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think they won best new artist over Soundgarden <laughs> for the Grammy. Is that true? I think so. Well, you guys won the Grammy that time, and and you famously said you didn't understand what this meant or what the moment was. And it, I actually thought it was a really good point because why do we give awards for art, which art, is the yeah. most subjective thing you can do? I think with movies, it's different. But when you start talking about uh, everybody who's made a rock song in 2019, here's the best one. Like, how how are we ever going to possibly decide what that is? Music hits everybody differently, right? Well, and I think I think it was, you know, and even in movies, you could say, well, who's the best actor? Well, they didn't have the same part. But they... Um, with music, yeah, it's all subjective. And, and we were smart enough at that point to know that yeah, it's probably a little bit rigged. And, you know, we, I, it just by the time we got there, it just wasn't, we weren't at our happiest time of, you know, we, 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 we didn't want to buy into all the shit. Right. That's the bottom line. I mean, we, we kind of knew some of the stuff that goes on and sometimes you kind of, you'd think like, oh, and would I have told myself at a younger age? Like, yeah, just buy into some of this shit. No big deal. I, I still wouldn't have done it. I, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's so many great groups that never got recognized and never will. 
Uh, they won't be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Fugazi probably won't be in the... Uh, Sonic Youth should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, all this... Uh, there's a lot of little bits of uh, uh, injustice. But, um, you know, to be honest, you should probably get the award and thank the people and, you know, the fan. Look, I, I'll watch the Grammys <laughs> with my daughters or something. And I'll be rooting for somebody to win. Like, oh, I really, you know... <laughs> Come on, Lana Del Rey, <laughs> win right. this one. You know, like she's great. But when you got Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that was that was meaningful. No, I no, I think it was. I in in a whole another kind of way, and and you know, again, there's there's other bands that probably you'd feel better about being in that group if if they were included as well, but. Um, in a weird way, it was a celebration and a reason to get everybody together and and families and crews and, um, you know, something that I, I guess if nothing else, we had, you know, done our time and, you know, we never broke up and, you know, I, I think we've done good things for uh, the art form. <laughs> and you had David Letterman there. And Dave, that you know, was cool. Yeah. Well, it was going to be Neil, and then um, Neil got nervous. I, I, I think, I think in the end, I think Neil, because like when we went and did it with Neil, or we inducted Neil, and we were part of that, which ended up turning into a record, which was a big turning point in our lives too. When we talk about those early days and where we thinking about breaking up and all that stuff, and then we made a record with Neil, and we thought, well, that's how you fucking do it. Right. And um and being around him and his energy and his knowledge and wisdom and um but that was at a small when when we were part of that ceremony, you know, it was at the Waldorf Astoria and it was a and I think when he found out it was at the Brook, you know, the big the large arena and I think he was just like, uh I'm just not feeling that, guys. <laughs> just wow. Um, so yeah, Letterman came to a rescue. He's a hero. He was he's so great. And I used to watch Letterman when I did the uh, midnight shifts at the petroleum company all those years. So he was like my co-pilot. And uh it was, you know, I'd I'd be alone at work in this little booth and getting to watch Dave every night, I'd never miss it. And he had great music. He was always pulling out like Warren Zevon or uh, Mary Margaret O'Hara, you know, all these musicians you wouldn't normally hear of. And um, he, he just said uh, he, he was he was good for music, Dave. And then um, to get to know him over the years of being part of the show and it, that it meant a lot to us. And then for him to do that was was really um, just awesome. I'm a huge Letterman guy because I'm in the exact age range. I was like 13 when the show, you know, when he when he got the NBC show. And music was such an important part of the first five to seven years of that show because he actually had an awesome band, you know? Yeah. Like that, nobody, no late night show had a band like that. I remember one of the best things Hiram I've ever Bullock seen. in the early days. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Schaefer. But I remember he had, and I think it's on YouTube, he had Mark Knopfler on. And, but without Dire Straits, it was just him, but they played Romeo and Juliet or one of those songs or Skate Away. And he oh, just wow. played it, or maybe it was Espresso Love. It was one of those three. He played 
with the band and they just filled in as the rest of Tire Straits. And it was incredible. They killed it, yeah. Yeah, and it was like in the mid-80s, there was nothing like that on TV unless SNL had somebody good, you know? And SNL would kind of go in waves with, sometimes they'd have good years where they were on it. When you guys were on the first time, that was actually one of those eras where they, they SNL was actually, you know, introducing a lot of these artists that were pretty relevant. And it wasn't just like pop acts. It was, you know, they had you guys on, they had Nirvana, Soundgarden was on. They were really kind of wired into that culture. But other than that, unless you went to cable, um, network TV, it just wasn't the same. Jeff, I have a question for you. Out of all the guys, uh, all the bands from the era that you guys popped out of. So we're going like 89 to 94. Um, which band from that era do you think should have been a bigger deal than they were? Uh, well, I mean, sort of, I, I can think of two different bands and it's sort of two different levels, but um, Mud Honey is the obvious one because um, they encapsulated like, you know, all of us sort of got thrown into this Seattle sound grunge thing. And that's what Mud Honey was. Mud Honey was the Seattle sound. Um, and, you, and you could even say the Melvins too, but the, the Melvins moved to San Francisco and later on to LA around that time. But um, both of those bands um, should have been a bigger deal. And to be honest, even though Soundgarden had like tons of hits, Soundgarden to me was like, the greatest band from our town like they um musicianship and songwriting and just the whole thing like i you know drummer. there were so many shows that i saw them at from what's that drummer that guy yeah. matt cameron yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah you ended up with him you, you you were talking earlier about the peak of the peak of us in the 90s and about 10 shows into Matt Cameron playing drums with us was when I felt like we were like a great band when I felt like, Holy shit. Like that was, yeah, that's was the that? answer. Yeah. That's, that's the answer you're looking for before bill. Yeah. Yeah. See Eddie, I knew there was an answer. You made me feel bad. And then it turned out there was an answer. No, there was an answer and Jeff had to come <laughs> up with it. Yeah. But, but, I, think... but I, I remember that that first few months that we played with Matt, it just felt like the honeymoon to me. It felt like the honeymoon that maybe we never had <laughs> or, right. or whatever. But, um, but yeah, you know, mud, honey, Melvin's Soundgarden, you know, all different ways, but they, they all should have, I don't know. They, they should have had, they should have, I mean, the Melvins and mud, honey are still bands, you know, still bands and making great records and making great music and playing shows. Um, so you could argue that they're, they're, they're still relevant still. Yeah. 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 Eddie, do you have a different answer or you have the same answer? No, mud honey is the same. It, actually all across the board, same answer, but mud honey, Mark arm is, you know, I, I, uh, and he knows this, I've, I've talked to him about it and we're friends, but I still am slightly nervous around him. Uh, I, he's such a great front man and lyricist and performer he's, he's gonna kill me <laughs> um you know it's he and that whole group you know had greatest drummer greatest 
bass player, great Steve Turner guitar, uh, Dan Peters, Matt Lucan. Um, it was just an, an and, and it was an event in, in Seattle. A Mudhoney show was like an event. And, um, and, it, and, and it was going to be eventful. You knew it. Even their manager, <laughs> Bob Whitaker, their tour manager, was he was an event. Um, so it was just part of, you know, as you know, when you talked earlier about, uh, did you guys get along or, you know, it's interesting that you guys got along when the previous generation, like Johnny Ramone or whatever, like he didn't, he didn't want to know the talking heads. He wanted to hate the talking heads. He was kind of friends with Blondie, but you know, he just saw every band as competition. Um, you know, I came up and I was just, I was the new guy and man, if it, it just meant the world to me that, that I could have friendships with, you know, Kim Thiel from Soundgarden or uh, the guys from Mudhoney and Bob, the manager. And uh, it just, and it still means the world to me. You know, I, I still, I'm like Ronnie Wood and the Rolling Stones. Like I'm, I'm still like the new guy. Right. <laughs> I remember when, uh, when Cobain initially criticized the band, like that had a pretty dramatic effect. I know you worked everything out and got along with him later, but that one time that he lobbed a grenade and you guys were pretty open, like it really made you reevaluate um, everything you were doing. When you look back at that now, do you think, like, should it have impacted you guys that way or was it legitimate? Well, I think that was more a construct of the press, right? Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there, there was that Rolling Stone article where the guy, I, remember, I can't remember his name, Michael Azarado or whatever, he, he, he wound me up and then I ended up saying something like, I, I can't remember what I said, like there's something about riding whose bandwagon and who's riding. And, but he, he was working it from both ends. Um, and that article was the thing that sort of blew it up a little bit. I mean, I mean, to be honest, we didn't really know those guys. I mean, even in the early Seattle scene, like I knew Chris Novoselic a little bit because he was friends with the Melvin's guys and would he would roadie Melvin shows. But, um, you know, those early Green River Mother Love Bone days, like the Nirvana was, kind of a South Bay band. So we, we, we didn't really hang out with them until we didn't, we didn't even really have the opportunity to hang out with them until much later. And by that time, uh, you know, it was too late. Right. What do you remember about that time now, Eddie? Oh, shoot. You know, there was, I have a couple of voicemail messages from Kurt on a tape somewhere, you know, back when your voicemail was on a cassette. Um, there was some cool intro. There was a Valentine's party at, at Nova Selich's house and there's a jukebox in the basement and Tad and Kurt and were wrestling in the corner. And then somehow I got involved in that. And then, you know, it was, it was just, just great, great times. And, and, you know, one weird thing, I remember we were, there's this thing in Japan called, is it Yoyogi Park? Jeff, is that what it is? Yoyogi Park? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's groups, it's it's kind of funded by the city or whatever. And they it's like this whole street. It's like uh three football fields long, and there's bands on both sides, separated by to a 
20 foot walkway to walk into. And, and, and it's, you walk down that street and it was, it was like turning the radio dial. You know, there was a, there was a in sync kind of cover band or there was a, or maybe it was before that. So new kids on the block, whatever. And then, and then another band and then another, and then Elvis impersonators and then a da da da. And there was this, uh, like a Nirvana cover band. The drummer was total metal. Uh, the bass player had a thing going on, but but the guitar player was exact Kurt. He's a Japanese version of Kurt. And he had the cardigan and bit of a haircut and the whole thing and the 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 converse and the and in between songs he would he would kind of be very dour and, and walk back to his amp and switch it and then come back and do the thing. And I just wanted to tell him like Kurt's not that sad. Like Kurt's, he's a good person. Like he, he's funny. Like we're, everyone's funny. You watch clips of that band or interviews or whatever, they're fucking funny. And, uh, you know, it was just weird to think that everybody's, you know, and of, of course the way things turned out, it didn't help with the uh, kind of caricature of it all. But um, it wasn't like that. You know, it wasn't, they were, they were, I was just very grateful even to have my, my little bits of time. Um, it was enough to make me, uh, deeply regret, uh, everything that happened and, and, and wish that it wouldn't have. So talk about the 2001 range, the strokes come up, white stripes, yeah, yeah, yes. And there's like all of a sudden this new, this new era this, that's rock, rock is back, even though the old era is still going. But every like 10 years, this happens. Out of those bands, which is the one that would have fit in with that whole 89 to 94 era? Because I would say the white stripes, but I don't know if you guys feel differently. Well, and Slater Kinney, and I, I love the first Kings of Leon. Well, I still love Kings of Leon, obviously. Um, yeah. But like that first record really hit me hard, or the EP, and then the first record, uh, and the second, you know. But um, and they kind of went through their shit, and I tried to help a little bit. I, I feel like an uh, older brother to that band. I think they they uh, they like that relationship. I, I certainly do. Um, but I think all of them, right? I, I think it's it's all. It it felt like the younger brother era to your era. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I think. I mean, I mean, the times that we spent hanging out with the Strokes guys, um, it seemed like if it would if they were ten years older that we would have been hanging out with those guys. You know, like they they had real similar sensibilities and art and music and just general enthusiasm and originality and, um, you know, Jack White's the greatest. I mean, you know, it's like anything he touches is like, is, is amazing. So. And his aesthetic and every, you know, he takes it to the full, like he really thinks about everything and he's right. like, it's so commendable and, and we appreciate that as listeners or consumers or whatever. It's like, this guy really thought this through and, and even his, you know, his business and his label and his bat company, you know about that, right, Bill? 
baseball bats? Yeah, he makes it war stick baseball bats. Incredible. This guy's using them uh, in the major leagues. I somehow didn't know that. You, yeah, war stick. Wow. I, I think one of the things I liked about those guys, the yeah, yeah, yeahs and the, and the strokes, was it was what you were talking about earlier with the, the connection with the crowd. Like I, I remember I saw the White Stripes probably summer of 2003 at like one of the K-Rock things here. And when they played it, I don't know how many people, and you know those festivals, the bands are changing. People are half paying attention. And it was just, it was the same thing, like what you're talking about. Like they just were able to connect with everybody that was there. And I still feel like that's going to be the advantage that rock is always going to have over all these other genres. Like I, well, I just have never when, felt that way at a hip hop concert. Yeah. And Billie Eilish, you know, the, the, they, they connect. It's, it's about that connection and lyrics, you know, these these people write great lyrics and they're connecting with their audience. And, you know, are uh, your kids into Billie Eilish? Oh, absolutely. And so they, am I. and they should be like, it's, yeah. it's really great. You know what I was going to say? Uh, when you talk about the strokes or whatever, it's interesting. Cause you see a group and like when I was a kid, you know, trying to find bands or, or be in bands. And I did a lot of, Tascam home recording, four track cassette, you know, the whole thing. And then trying to be in a band and like, like it was difficult to find the right people, different, you know, and then, and then you, how do I say it? When, when you get to the strokes or you, what you realize, like they seem like a band, like a four headed monster, like the red hot chili peppers yeah. or the who or Led Zeppelin. They're like four, they must be all similar enough so when you're in a young group you're trying to find people that are similar to you and your musical tastes or your ethics or you know how you know uh and and then even fugazi which would be like the perfect example like they must be all exactly the same like they must all the the cool thing that that you want young musicians to know or whatever is like the band is made up of different people and you're not going to find four, you know, you think the ideal of band is like three other guys that think like you. It's that band's going to suck. <laughs> right. And so it was so cool to be in a band and, and realize we were different. And, and that, that, and then when you, but then it was actually getting to know the older bands or the, the bands that came before you. And when you actually really got to know them outside of reading interviews or something like being their friends, wow, oh, this is what it takes. So I, I, I want people to know that. Like you sometimes forget, like you have to, it's the diversity, it's the tension, it's the different uh, approaches that, that actually make it all work. Well, I wonder, you know, you see that in sports now where everybody's changing teams after a couple of years, right? And especially in basketball, everybody just, every three, four years is like, I'm going to go here. Now nah, I'm going to be on this team now. And you see these guys that aren't willing to really work through some of the rough patches, you know? And, and I remember right after LeBron left Miami, into, right before he left Miami in 2014, and Pat Riley gave this press conference. And at that point, we didn't know if LeBron was staying or if he was going to go somewhere else. And he was just talking about like, hey, 
we didn't win this year. It's okay. This is hard. You're not supposed to win every year. One, only one out of 30 teams can win. Hmm. And, you know, sometimes when you don't win, that's when you find out who you are and you got to fight through it. And he's to say LeBron left, but you know, I wonder that with, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he was gone within two days, uh, but, um, but I do think that with band, like, you know, you guys have been together 30 years now, basically, but, uh, you know, there's, you hit those spots and the relationships have to keep it together and a whole bunch of other things, but it's not going to be easy. It's like what Jeff said earlier. It's if it was going to be easier the whole way through, then everybody would be doing it. So I, I don't know. I, I have a, I still haven't been able to figure out why there hasn't been that next rock era like we had 01 to 04, like we had from 90 to 94. Like if the next one's coming or if music has just changed or if there's been too much rock music at this point. I mean, we've had like 65 years of rock music. So I just don't know. I don't have a prediction for it. I'm rambling, but there's a group, I, I don't know the answer. Well, there's a group called White Reaper and they're they're playing sold out shows and, and kind of decent sized venues. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there's, you know, I, I think that art form, well, yeah, I think it'll always exist. We kind of talked about it before, but, um, Greta Van Fleet, I think has a chance too. I thought I, they're, first of all, they're related, which is good. That means they're going to stay together. Um, but you know, they, I think, they have a second album, I think, coming out at the end of this year, but that's another one that that maybe can do it. Can I ask you why that first song you released, which is really cool, but is also way different than just about any Pearl Jam song you've ever put out. It almost seemed like you were fucking with your fans a little bit. Oh, come on. It, 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 a little bit. No? No. It was the most interesting first song to put out. Um Fucking with them is a we would never. Well, I challenge think people them, thought, wait, is this challenge is this them? gonna be a <laughs> is this gonna it's be a, a totally thing. different sound for Pearl Jam or is this one song? Like that was a debate for a couple of weeks there. Right. Well, I guess we knew that the whole record wouldn't end up being completely uh directed more that route. So um if they panicked, I, I think we knew that it would be fine. You know, it, it's it's like, you know, a thrill ride. You're like, oh, shit. But you're going to be okay. You're gonna yeah, be but fine. you know, it's interesting. It wasn't panic. It was kind of like, oh, what is this? It was more like, I don't feel like people were upset about it. Oh, good. I actually, I actually thought people were like, whoa, this is something is happening on this album. They've obviously, they're going to try some stuff and... And stuff's gonna happen. Jeff, do you read that stuff? Do you are you online reading the reaction? Are you on message boards? Are you looking at any of that? No, but but I, I had a I had enough friends, you know, call and say, you know, that they're that they liked it or well that's different, or there's a handful of friends that are huge fans that I didn't hear from. <laughs> and so um uh but but you know, it was one of those it was one of those songs that we knew we were sort of like pushing the envelope a little bit and yet everybody like sort of attacked that song when we were putting it together. And then when Ed wrote the, you know, the lyrics and the vocal melodies started happening to it, it was like, 
seriously like one of the best days of the last 10 years of creating things because it felt like we were doing something brand new and it was great. It felt, it felt like it was a really good song. Uh, even though there were some keyboards and, and stone was playing bass and, uh, you know, the drums had, uh, you know, even though it's Matt actually playing most of the drums that are on that track, um, it sounded, uh, like a drum machine. Um, so that's the stuff that I get excited about is the stuff that's maybe pushing the boundaries a little bit. And it feels like we're, I know that there's, there's excitement in that. I think as a band, you know, when you try something and it, and it feels, it still feels natural. Was it, was it, wasn't it a drum, a Matt Cameron drum loop that started it? Is that? Yeah. 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 So Matt Cameron, how many drummers did you have before Matt Cameron? At least four, right? Four or five? <laughs> five? Uh, it was so long numbers. ago. Four or five. I mean, come on, these are people. I mean, <laughs> Wait, you Matt, four, Matt, four Matt, drummers? Matt's been in the band. Matt, yeah, Matt's been in the band for what twenty three years, and he's he's still the fifth drummer. <laughs> oh, five, yeah, yeah. Um, Eddie, what song are you most what song are you most excited to play in concert from this new album? Oh uh, shoot, you know I can't. Uh... Can't pick. Yeah, no, it's just, I, I want to give you a better answer and it's the usual answer of like, you know, we just like the whole damn thing. But, you know, we went through, uh, as we were getting ready for tour, we went through everything. Um, you know, our one our one issue was that our first show was going to be out before the record came out. Our, our first show was before the record came out. So it was like all of a sudden we had a week of shows in Canada and there would only be two, maybe three songs out from the record. So what do we do in the set list? Do we not play these other new songs? So that's one thing I guess we don't have to worry about anymore. By the time we get out there, it'll be out. Um, See, I mean, it's going to be, I can't, I don't I hesitate to guess, but it'll at least be four months. I've got three or four months till people are going to concerts again. Hopefully. I mean, we have the, the, I guess we'd be leaving in mid June to go to Europe and we're all in a holding pattern. Is this the first time you've ever put out an album, but then not been able to tour with it? It has to be. Yeah. Cause usually it's tied together. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> oh my goodness. It is crazy. It's just crazy. And then every once in a while you you have to, you know, my my instincts are, you know, don't react, respond, you know, deal with the situation. Don't react. But but every once in a while and almost in a it, it's just crazy to think like we had no idea any of this was coming down, you know, a month ago or two months right. ago. Like it was not even a word that we had heard. Now, some people, maybe in an administration or, you know, some world leaders might have heard about it. Um it 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 it's so crazy that the people we trust weren't able to get out ahead of this. And um that's crazy. I feel the same way. Hey, we we probably should have at least had some idea by the beginning of February, but 
you know, as we talked about earlier, even that weekend before everything started to get shut down, everybody was going to basketball games. So whenever there's a Laker game that Tuesday night and there were NBA games that Wednesday night and all of it's nuts in retrospect. Well, I wish you the best of luck with the, uh, with the album. I encourage people to listen to it. I thought it was excellent. Um, and I can't wait until you're finally out there and touring whenever that is. I know it's gotta be frustrating for you guys, but, um, at some point you'll be out there. Uh, Jeff, any last words? Uh, who do you th- I have a question. Who, who do you think would have won the NBA championship this year? Oh, good question. So it's funny the week before the Celtics. No, I, I actually <laughs> thought the Lakers, I thought the Lakers were going to win. I thought they had the best team because of the, uh, I just thought the LeBron Anthony Davis combo when it got to playoff time, when it just gets so much more physical and the respect that the officials have for them. And they're just always going to be able to get to the free throw line 25 to 30 times in any big game. And it's just that trumped anything that anybody else had, but I thought it was going to be whoever won the Lakers Clippers series. I thought was going to be who won the title. Well, how about um, this too? That the Lakers are going to win it for Kobe as well. Like they were. Oh yeah, the the fans were definitely focused on that, you know. And, and I, but that you know, there were some unknown variables, right? Davis had never been in really a huge playoff game before, and LeBron was on pace to play over three thousand minutes regular season and playoffs. And um, so who knows? Because you see all the time with injuries and why. Who do you think would have won, Jeff? I thought maybe the Lakers were peaking a little bit too soon. Very possible. I thought the Clippers were still, you know, and a lot of that depended on Paul George. And then I, I think I think the Bucks were, you know, right there in the mix. You know, Eddie, do you have an opinion on this? Uh no, I my my basketball history. I I know everything about like Jordan, Rodman, Pippen. That's my era. <laughs> After that, I well, you know, I literally gonna... retired once. Once they won those last ones, I I literally I I didn't even go to another professional sporting event. Like I retired. I didn't even go to Wrigley. I, I was just done. Um, wow. It was it was that good. Couldn't get any better. <laughs> I'm done. I'll focus on other things. Unbelievable! You just dropped the mic. Yeah, and then and then I slowly started breaking my. Uh, uh, you know, I, I became my own scab. Like I, I, <laughs> our crew guy, George, he's like, you know, so I'd, I'd go to, uh, I'd go to Wrigley and, and, uh, I'd go to batting practice and I'd meet Harry Carey. And then I'd, and he said, well, I heard you broke your, your strike, you know, or your, you know, your, I said, no, I didn't watch the game. I, I went to batting practice. I left. And then Wow. Another time I used the technicality and I watched it from the uh, the rooftop in the back. He said, you went to the game. I said, not technically. No, it well, was that gonna... good. It was it was that exciting. Nothing could beat that. I mean, me and Dennis Rodman, uh, whatever, uh, crowd surfing, you know, jumping off, jumping off a 20-foot balcony with drinks in our hands after the Bulls win. Um, against Utah in Chicago, and then and then he jumped, and I was like, "Oh fuck!" 
And then the crowd <laughs> caught him, and then we're bouncing around on the the crowd. I was like, that's eh, this pretty good. It was, you know, they they had that big Michael Jordan documentary coming out that my friend Jason Hare did. Um, that I think they're now going to move up to the end of April, but it's ten parts. And, oh, the Bulls, not just Michael yeah. Jordan, but the Bulls. Yeah, the, it's the last, well, it's about Jordan. It's the 98 Bulls and Jordan. And uh, it's 10 hours, 10 parts. And they've been, they've worked on it for two years. They interviewed everybody. And I think it has a chance to be really great. And it's, and it's, so when I was at ESPN, when we were doing 30 for 30, we finished the first series. And then we had always heard about this secret documentary that, Oh, wow. had been made about Michael Jordan's last season where they had all this practice footage of him yelling at teammates and just being Michael Jordan, like being the guy we'd always heard about. And we were always trying to figure out what can we do? Can we get a director? And Jordan wanted no part of it. And he controlled all his rights and was just like, no, nobody's, nobody's doing that. That I, that footage will not be seen. So I don't know what changed over the last few years, but, um, it's all coming out and the footage is amazing. And I think I put it this way, Eddie, I think you're going to be happy. I think you're going to be happy with the 10 hours. Well, and you know what, who else was just so incredible during that time and was really great and gracious to Jeff and I all over all these years is Phil Jackson. And, you know, we have a connection with his kids and we, he was, you know, he would, he was, uh, he was a cool force of nature to be around you know at that time and um he was kind enough to know who we were and and he would give us shit <laughs> he would fuck with us a little bit but as as you sh as you should get fucked with <laughs> um but he was you know at one point I think after uh the Bulls disbanded and Phil was just in with the Lakers I was like Phil Jackson was my he was my favorite player in the NBA, you know? Yeah. Did Who's the most surprising person who's ever loved your band? The one that you guys were just <laughs> like, wait a second, what? I have, a, I have an answer. Oh, great. Octavia Spencer. Wow. What? Yeah. When we played, when I did uh, something at the Oscars or something, um, I walked off and she was there and... Maybe it was towards the end of the show or something, and she stopped me. She she put down her phone. We were it was still on the st the side of the stage at the little theater or whatever. Yeah, it was so sweet. And her friend was next to me and and, and next to her, and she said, "Oh, you should hear her sing. She sings you like you wouldn't believe." <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, it was it was really sweet. It was awesome. But as far as you know, you wouldn't have guessed it. That yeah, was really cool because I, I love her so much. So, Jeff, you have an answer? I think in the early days, um, I remember this uh, wrestler named Brett the Hitman Hart, I think was his name. <laughs> wow. Uh, he, sh he, he showed up at a show like in Edmonton. And I think he and Dave Aberdeen ended up being like really super good friends. But I remember thinking like, I, I remember he showed us his forehead weird. where he like, <laughs> he ran a razor blade and he had this giant scar like right at his hairline where he'd make, you know, the blood come out of his head. And and I just remember thinking like, wow, that's really weird that that guy likes it. <laughs> <laughs>
But you know, the other one when it first came about was actually Dennis Rodman. And then totally. that was the beginning of a, a long, long, deep friendship. And, um, you know, it, it was a little nerve wracking at, you know, at the beginning there, it, it was like, <laughs> who the fuck is this guy? But he really, the music, it, it fueled him. It, it was pretty intense. And that's when they were going through all this, this stuff, you know, it was, it was getting hot and heavy in Chicago, but he, that was his thing. He would put on our music and watch the tapes, put on his music and watch the tapes. That guy worked so hard. You know, there was all the, the, you know, the wedding dress and, you know, all the, the stuff he would do, but man, that guy worked hard and would ride the bike, you know, half hour after the game he'd he'd ride the bike on the side of the you know near the on on the bench like he worked that guy worked and then watched the tapes and and about rebounding like knew every he knew if one guy if he shot it it was going to be short he he knew right you know especially on his own team his own team he had it memorized he's like scott he always like he's going to shoot long he's going to shoot long like he always knew um yeah that they did a documentary about him last year. That was, it was okay. I was, I was frustrated by it though, because I would have devoted like five minutes to the science that he created about rebounding. Like you said, he, he had this fifth sense for where the ball was going because he spent so many hours studying people's, you know, like Scotty shooting long or like if this guy's in the corner, it's going to go to one of these two spots. I think he was the first guy who figured all that stuff out. And it was, and he would just, you, when you went to the games, you could see him moving the spots, even as the ball was in the air and not totally understand what he was doing. And he'd be like, oh, that's why. Cause he's, yeah. the ball's about to go there. And, and there he is. I always thought he was kind of like a rebounding genius. Um, and we tried to be a good influence, you know, just, just settle, settle down. <laughs> Let's read a book. <laughs> <laughs> you got three titles out of him. We had, we had this one. Can I tell a quick story? Yeah. Hey, John. Yeah. Can you give me a beer? Yeah. Um, so real quick, though, it was Seattle. It was regular season. Uh, they had a practice, and then they were going to play the next day, back when Seattle had a team. And uh, we're at the Four Seasons, da-da-da, and Phil Jackson's in the lobby, and he's smoking a cigar, and I wave to Phil, and... And then um, George's security guy, uh, 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 Dennis's security guy, George, holds out four, uh, three, three plane tickets to Vegas. I said, what the fuck is that? I said, I thought we were going to like go up. I, I brought a book. <laughs> I was like, let's sit on the couch. You just sit on one side. I was like, we'll read books. And he said, Jane's Addiction is playing in Las Vegas. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. It's like fucking six o'clock he's like we'll get there by nine they don't go on till 9 30 and i said dennis just fucking you know and and i think i think the reason phil likes me is that i'm like one of his friends that will like calm him down right so i i feel like you know phil's looking at me like, like when what what the fuck's going on over there with the plane tickets <laughs> so sure enough we end up you know because he's persuasive and we end up going through the fucking 
Seattle airport. I mean, old ladies love Dennis Rodman. I mean, we're just like running through the airport. People are like creating a running trail behind him, like this river. Dennis, Dennis screaming. And he's going, Eddie Vedder right here. Eddie Vedder right here. He's pointing at me. Uh, we go to Vegas. We fly to fucking Vegas. We get to the thing. We get a car. We dot it up, blah, blah, blah. We get to the side of the stage. Jane's Addiction starts playing. Flea's playing with him. And we're sitting on a road case on the side of the stage. We each got a light beer in our hand. And music's great. Jane's Addiction comes on and just mountain song and is killing it. And uh, and Dennis looks over and he goes, he goes, this is relaxing, right? That <laughs> 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 was great. Holy. To think of Dennis Rodman relaxed is like the craziest part of that story. I didn't know well, he that's could relax. What, that's, that's how on rocket jet fuel that he was, that that was relaxing. And then, you know, we didn't spend the night. We got on another commercial plane, commercial plane, you know, da da da. Like, get back. And then he had fucking whatever, 20 rebounds the next night or something. Well, that was the thing. I, I think Iverson was like this too. The guys that could burn the candle at both ends like that, because they were such athletic freaks. When it goes, it goes immediately. You can do it. And then, Rod, like Rodman, they win the title in 98. He's basically out of the league the next year. Iverson went from like was second team all NBA or something in two years. He's basically he's done because at some point you can't be up 19, 20, 21 hours a day going wherever and then play basketball like your body's not going to hold up. Even Jordan, the Jordan stories like him, he just didn't sleep and he would play like 36 holes of golf and then play in the finals wow. and stuff like that. Some those people are just wired differently. Although some would say that you guys. I mean, I, the amount of, think of the amount of two and a half hour to three hour concerts you've put in um, over the years. is You have to be at least somewhat of an athletic freak, right? The 30 years of concerts? Well, I think Jeff and I had a conversation, didn't we, about like, it's good that we're in this group, right? Because it, it makes us stay in shape. We have right. to. <laughs> the good thing about being in this group, you got to be in shape. So, um, yeah. Well, they you, said Mick Jagger was always the first one who figured that out, right? Like he, he was always staying in shape and during, a, during an era when nobody even knew that you were supposed to do that. And then he would go out and do his thing and now he's still doing it. I actually, I think Tina Turner taught him. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wait, before we go, I have to tell you guys one story. So I started dating my wife in July, 1998. And she loved Pearl Jam, as did I. And then probably about two, three months in, when it, you know when it starts to get, start to feel like, oh, this is starting to get serious. September range, you guys play at Great Woods. And so this is September 98. And I think, I, I don't know how this worked out, and I don't know what the karma of this is, the good karma. But I think it's one of the legendary shows you guys have had. There, there was a Great Woods 98 show that if you go on like the the super nerdy Pearl Jam sites and they talk about the great shows you guys have had, this was one of them. And somehow I was there with my wife. So I feel like that's what I think. Maybe we we're destined to be together and have kids that love music. I don't know. It's Jeff, why is, 
Is that because because we started with an acoustic set? What what was the story of that? There was a reason we I think had to You got you got mad during the show at somebody oh. or something and went to another. It was like because you know, you would do this from time to time. You're like an athlete. You'd you would take some slight and you would put it into the into the concert. And I think that's what happened with this. You got mad, somebody got kicked out, or somebody threw a bottle or something, and you just got mad, and then all of a sudden it was on. And you just like <laughs> laid the smack down. <laughs> I mean, all this stuff probably blends in together for you guys now at this point, right? Well, no, I remember most shows and 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 I I I can't remember exactly. Somebody throws some like a hit me in the head with a quarter or something. Like what what was it? Maybe that's what it was. Somebody, I think somebody threw something at you and it made you mad. Well, that sounds right. Dime well spent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, yeah, no, I'd, yeah. Piss me yeah, off with the don't sign. Don't do that again. Yeah, we People don't, yeah, listening, no, I'll, don't. I'll deliver. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to. I'm going to come through. Don't worry. Uh, all right. Well, hey, I would Bill, love to do. Great talking to you. I'm, I'm, now I'm talking over you. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, you've interviewed William Goldman, one of my heroes. Oh, yeah. That's um, my guy. You talked about Bill Russell. Uh, you were out here in Seattle talking to him. That was so powerful. Um, I just really appreciate your writing. And um, I know Jeff and I are very uh, happy to have this time with you and uh, really, really appreciate you. Oh, I appreciate that. And obviously, uh, since I've been playing your one of your songs as the lead of the podcast this whole time, as, as an homage, you can understand how I feel. Jeff, thanks for doing this as well. This was uh, yeah, this was really you. great. By the way, it's really hard to do these with three people in three different locations, but I thought we did a half-decent job. It would have been better in person, but I still enjoyed it. So thanks, time. guys. Good luck with the uh, new album, and can't wait to see you when you finally get to tour. All right. Love to you and the family. All right. Thanks. Take care.